The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Live from our nation's capital. How do we reopen this economy? The latest on how this pandemic is impacting farmers. What does this do for the United States' relationship with China? Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We're responding to this crisis and manufacturers are stepping up like never before. We're looking at 70 candidates for different vaccines. How do we make sure a pandemic of this scale never happens again? This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin. Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Two hours from night two until the 7 p.m. Eastern curfew takes effect here inside of the nation's capital. Lots to get through in terms of how President Trump is navigating this and how Democrats are navigating this, how the country is grappling with the cities of America scorned and, and hurting hurting. We have an all-star team of reporters to help us get through this. And what has the reaction been around the world? Guy Snodgrass is going to join us as well. And Al Mater gives us uh, his take, Democratic strategist, partner at Brownstein, Hyatt, Farber, and Shrek, his take on former Vice President Joe Biden's speech today in Philadelphia. Lots to get through. Let's first get a check of the headlines from my good friend, Nancy Lyons. Nancy. Thanks, Kevin. I start with that speech. Presumptive Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden is condemning President Trump for allowing the use of tear gas on peaceful protesters outside the White House. With Trump visiting a burned out church across the street, Biden says it was clearly a staged photo op. The president held up the Bible at St. John's Church yesterday. I just wish he opened it once in a while instead of brandishing it. If he opened it, he could have learned something. Biden says Congress needs to address systemic racism with laws to outlaw police chokeholds and increase oversight and accountability of police departments. One of President Trump's allies, Senator Lindsey Graham, says he will hold a hearing in the Senate Judiciary Committee on June 16th to examine the death of George Floyd in police custody. It's clear to me that policing uh, and uh, among uh, men in the African-American community is a topic that needs to be discussed and acted upon, and I expect this committee to do our part. House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer of Maryland says the Congressional Black Caucus is taking the lead on developing a House legislative package. D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser is upset with President Trump and federal authorities after protesters were forced out of Lafayette Square last night before the city's curfew began. Protesters were forcibly removed by authorities so the president could walk across the street to see that damaged church. From what I could see, just like you all um, could see, I, I didn't see any provocation that would warrant um, the deployment of munitions, um, and especially for the purpose of moving the president. D.C. police officers were not involved in the operation to escort the president. Virginia Congressman Jerry Connolly, who chairs the Government Operations Subcommittee, is demanding answers from the Secret Service following what he calls an unwarranted attack on peaceful protesters. He's requesting information on 
whether the Secret Service may have directed the use of the tear gas and rubber bullets that were used against the protesters for that photo op. Seven states, including Maryland and the district, are voting today. Maryland voters are choosing presidential nominees, the mayor of Baltimore and members of Congress. They're voting mostly by mail because of social distancing. Envelopes must be postmarked by today. In the district, voters are also choosing presidential nominees in four of the eight seats on the D.C. Council. Most voters in the district have already voted by mail, but 20 precincts are open for in-person voting, and that will run until 8 o'clock tonight. People voting are exempt from the curfew. It's time now for the Beltway Business Report. Here is Bloomberg's Joan Doniger. Nancy Wall Street isn't seeing reason right now to worry about the unrest that's gripped the nation. So the stock averages rose six-tenths to one-and-a-tenth percent. The Dow up 268 to 25,743. The Nasdaq adding 56 to 96,08. And the S&P's 25-point gain, taking it to 3,081, now puts it at its highest level in just short of three months. But Northern Virginia isn't ready to reopen yet, not according to Governor Northam. He says the Commonwealth's health data is promising enough for most of the rest of the state to move into the second phase of reopening on Friday. But he says neither Northern Virginia nor the Richmond area are ready for anything to change since Northern Virginia only started phase one last Friday. Direct pushback at Facebook to CEO Mark Zuckerberg's decision to leave up President Trump's when the looting starts, the shooting starts comment last week. The company held an internal town hall in which Zuckerberg said he doesn't think private companies should regulate political speech. Some workers had held a virtual walkout yesterday. Two engineers said they quit over it because they say the social network is failing to enforce its own rules when it comes to the president. You're up to date now on business from the Beltway to Baltimore. I'm Joan Doniger. This is Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 HD2. Thanks, Joan. Global news 24 hours a day on air and on Quick Take by Bloomberg, powered by more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. I'm Nancy Lyons. Back to you, Kevin. Thank you, Nancy. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. And we are following multiple fronts this evening as we are less than two hours away from the second night of a 7 p.m. curfew being uh, enacted here in Washington, D.C. Uh, it was a, a, the last 24 hours inside of the nation's capital, capital have been historic, to say the least, uh, and memorable, to say the least. Uh, as, as citizens, Washingtonians, we've grown accustomed, um, perhaps uncomfortably so, to helicopters, to uh, the deployment of tear gas, uh, rubber uh, bullets and, and, and tactics uh, by police officers, by National Guard members, uh, in, in scenes that maybe a month ago we thought would never happen uh, here or that we thought was from a different era. Uh, lots to get through. We have it all covered on multiple fronts with an all-star team of reporters and analysts. Uh, I want to kick things off with Josh Wingrove. Josh, of course, is Bloomberg White House reporter and what did President Trump do today in terms of addressing the country, and what will he do tomorrow, Josh? Well, we we had him visit today the uh, shrine of uh, Pope John Paul II. This was over the objections of the Catholic uh, Archbishop in Washington, so uh, that was sort of one of the a range of pushback that he got. And of course, questions swirled all day today over that uh, event, shall we call it, last night, where uh, uh, police and other law enforcement 
cleared out Lafayette Square next to the White House using uh, smoke bombs and pepper spray so that the president, or at least allowing the president shortly after to go walk to that church. And so the, there was sort of gentle pushback uh, from a couple of Republican senators, Tim Scott, Ben Sass, uh, then the vast majority of the others said nothing at all, said they didn't see it, uh, which is an interesting statement. Uh, and so Trump, other than that, hasn't said much today. And, uh, you know, I think uh, Kellyanne Conway is saying that the reportedly another Oval Office address is maybe still on the table. This after, of course, an impromptu address last night before the walk to the church. So a lot of things up in the air right now on this one. But the president is uh, is, is getting some blowback for his event yesterday, and in particular, the, the, the holding of the Bible and the taking of the photos. Josh Wingrove's on the line. He's Bloomberg White House reporter. You mentioned the Republican response. I'm reading from uh, our colleague Justin Sink and Travis Tritton's report on the Bloomberg Terminal. Two Republican senators, mm-hmm. Tim Scott of South Carolina and Ben Sass of Nebraska, said they did not support the use of tear gas, rubber bullets, and flashbang devices to disperse protesters gathered Monday in Lafayette Square across the street from the White House. I want to read what Senator Sass said. Quote, There is no right to riot, no right to destroy others' property, and no right to throw rocks at police. But there is a fundamental, a constitutional right to protest. And I am against clearing out a peaceful protest for a photo op that treats the word of God as a political prop. Those are some pretty harsh words from Senator Sass, Josh. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, um, Senator Scott also, you know, was was discussing this and should be noted that Senator Scott is the only black Republican senator right now. Uh, so, you know, his, uh, given the landscape that we're dealing with right now, that perhaps carries uh, its own particular weight. Um, you know, then we had a statement just now also, uh, because of the core question today has been who gave the order for that tear gassing or whatever you want to call it to be used yesterday. And the park police have gone out of their way just a short while ago to claim that they didn't use tear gas. They just used smoke canisters and pepper spray, which functionally, you know, it, it's a gas that makes you tear up. So I don't, I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a bit speechless that that is uh, the, the defense that they're hanging on. But they are claiming that projectiles were thrown. We're seeing similar claims out of the DOJ. This uh, is, is at least not widely supported by the video we had yesterday. Um, so we really don't know. I mean, you know, is, it, did Bill Barr you know, order the clearing of this park? Did the Park Service order the clearing of this park? Why did they order the clearing of this park? Was it because a bottle sailed by Bill Barr's head? We don't know. Uh, but, you know, miraculously, I guess shortly after, the park was cleared, so the president was able to cross it. I think it's important to note that we are living in an incredibly polarized time. And so for some, the images of the president walking to St. John's and holding up a Bible uh, was little more than a political prop. But for others, it was a sign of religious independence and religious freedom. And the president's reelection campaign, uh, uh, led by his campaign manager, Brad Parscale, uh, said the president's, quote, determination to enforce law and order had immediate impact, end quote. From their perspective, and I spoke earlier this afternoon with a senior source on the president's reelection campaign, from their perspective, this issue of law and order is going to be one that might not play well in the cities, but their banking will play well, not just in more rural communities, but in amongst a certain electorate in suburbs. Is that right, Josh? Uh, 
Yeah, I, I think I think that they're making that gambit. Of course, in particular, uh, suburban women are a critical cohort from them. You know, uh, I, I guess time will tell, right? I mean, this president has a very devoted base. I, yeah, I think we, anyone would be surprised to see them particularly. But that's move but up, not to I'm, yeah. And, and, I apologize. I asked the question the wrong way. Not I'm not asking you to to make a, a prediction here, but that's that is the calculation that they're making. That is the that's the that that they're saying that come November that the swing voters will look back and they will vote for law and order uh, and that that's going to be where they where they where they push through i mean yeah i think that's the calculation that they're at least some of them are making i i i you know it i, I view this as if, if you're the president and you don't particularly want to get bogged down in uh sort of painstakingly responding to the core issues of these, which is to say police brutality, structural racism and injustice, and protesters' concerns about those things. You know, the, the, the law and order thing is an easier one to go to, but, you know, you're just, you, you're, you're targeting the reaction to the root issue rather than the root issue itself. Uh, you know, and we, yeah. for instance, George W. Bush put out this statement, what, an hour ago? You know, speaking to some of the core issues that are driving these protests, not the sort of Antifa extremist faction of the protest, but, the, you know, the core issue of the protest. The president hasn't really done that. In fact, he put out a tweet today saying that, you know, they, they, they continue to woo black voters in particular. He said that he's done more for black voters than any president since Lincoln. So, you know, I, I think it's an evolving issue for them. And, of course, uh, it'll be interesting to see how these protests play out in particular in those crucial swing states and, of course, the ones where black voters are a sizable uh, part of the, uh, the electorate. It's remarkable. And we're going to touch on what uh, Biden said today uh, uh, as well and, and, and how Biden is, is playing this and if he's doing enough or not or, or should be doing more. We're going to talk about all of it. And again, folks, look, we are living in an incredibly polarized time. So it, it's important to note uh, that what you see in one image is not what someone else is seeing in another. Uh, I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. You can download the Bloomberg Sound on podcasts on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find me on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. But we all saw the same thing. Hopefully, we all saw the same thing uh, in the death of George Floyd because that haunts all of us. More next. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Surreal times. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Uh, I was talking with uh, Tom Keen earlier today on Bloomberg Surveillance, and uh, we, were, we were talking about all the different incredible reporting that has gone on uh, in the past uh, Several, I mean, several weeks, but especially the last couple of days. And one of the articles that came up was The Hill's Jonathan Easley. The headline reads, How Trump Cleared the Park Around the White House for a Church Photo Op. And just, even when I was reading this, it, it, it's it's surreal because you just, I, I don't know. I mean, it's it's surreal. Maybe that's how my, my mind works. Um, but he writes in this piece, quote, the streets, he, he writes, he chronicles like a minute-by-minute play-by-play of, of that particular scene. But this graph really, really, uh, really stood out to me. Hundreds of protesters had flooded the streets around the White House as the clock ticked toward a 7 p.m. curfew that had been announced earlier in the day by Mayor Muriel Bowser, a Democrat. The streets around the White House were filled with scores of police cars, armed 
armored vehicles and heavily armed military personnel squaring off with angry protesters who were concentrated at the corner of 16th Street and 8th Street along Lafayette Square, which faces the White House. Then he goes on to report, quote, the police had unexpectedly fired tear gas and smoke bombs at the demonstrators without warning. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. It's just a scene that you just would never think would uh, would play out in, in Washington, D.C. I'm really, really grateful that my friend Jonathan Easley of The Hill is joining us on the phone. Jonathan, congrats. I mean, great. Thank you. I don't want to say congrats. Thank you for your incredible reporting uh, throughout the past couple of days. And, and I guess, what are you hearing about what could happen tonight? Hey, Kevin. Well, thanks for having me, and thanks for the kind words there. Um, I'm, I'm not back on the scene uh, right now, I just, but just sort of watching the images, obviously being beamed in on, on cable news, and it looks like we could be in for another uh, another long night. Um, I mean, it's sort of what was so uh, shocking about yesterday was, you know, obviously the, the curfew was implemented, and I think there was sort of a sense that that might sort of call some of the crowd that uh, that had showed up and that uh, the police might be able to, to uh, have have a better handle on it. I mean, when I when I showed up yesterday, you know, I didn't wasn't bracing for like a, a tense scene or anything like that. I assumed they would try to sweep people out of there uh, as the curfew hit. Um, but we sort of know uh, what what happened there is that President Trump planned uh, to go across the street to the church, and there was there was absolutely just a planned and coordinated effort to to clear those streets to uh, to make that pathway possible. And uh, just uh, a, a really tense situation there between the the military personnel uh, that had gathered the the protests that I saw. Were were largely peaceful. Obviously, there was some tense moments. The the protesters um, staring down the military personnel, getting in their face, some jeering and taunting. Uh, the, the park police, I believe, is saying that they saw instances where the protesters provoked the police. I didn't see it. I mean, these are murky situations. You never really know uh, what's what. The park police is also saying that they didn't use tear gas. Now, I think they said they used pepper balls and uh, and smoke bombs. I mean, I'll tell you, just sort of being in the, in the crowd there, I, I don't know how big of a difference it would have made. I mean, those things are, are powerful. They explode with loud loud noises, and they, they shoot sparks and smoke, and they get in people's eyes. People are coughing, pouring water into their eyes. Um, but, yeah, you just got to hope. I mean, it, it looks like the, the protest down by the White House, they, they've added some additional fencing out there uh, by, by Lafayette Square Park. Uh, people are, are sort of laying down on the, on the concrete, from what I've seen, uh, holding signs. You just yeah. I mean, you just got to hope and pray that it's a, it's a peaceful demonstration tonight. We don't we don't see an escalation of what's gone on for the last few days. And there's been protests throughout the day today. I mean, especially along 14th Street, hundreds of protesters, peaceful protesters, um, 
protesting. I want to read a statement that just came out from former President George W. Bush. Quote, it remains a shocking failure that many African-Americans, especially young African-American men, are harassed and threatened in their own country. It is a strength when protesters protected by responsible law enforcement march for a better future. In this statement, Mm -hmm. the former president goes on to say, um, achieving justice for all is the duty of all. This will require a consistent, courageous, and creative effort. We serve our neighborhoods best when we try to understand their experience. Uh, Jonathan Easley, in terms of your reporting, and I've been talking with some staffers on both sides of the aisle over the last few days, in terms of what you're hearing, do you think that there's an appetite for some type of policy to come out of Washington in response to all of this unrest and all of this uh, following the killing of George Floyd. Yeah, so I mean, uh, look, the, the the difficult thing here is just sort of parsing the the different levels that this is playing out on. There's the one level which we've seen largely peaceful protests that have played out during the daytime um, for protesters who are demanding justice for for George Floyd and want to see uh, Congress enact laws that will deal with what they view as as uh, racial discrimination uh, among law enforcement officials toward the African-American community. Joe Biden obviously left uh, Delaware for the first time since the coronavirus lockdown today and went and gave a speech in Philadelphia, which uh, a city you know well, I think, Kevin. Yeah. Um, and uh, obviously there, it's one of the dozens of cities across the country that's been racked by civil unrest over the last few days. And, and he called on Congress to pass some laws uh, banning chokeholds uh, that, that, uh, that would prevent the military from passing along sort of like uh, big big guns and, and, and military uh, military equipment the, the police departments for them to use and a uh, lot of those reforms yeah a lot of those reforms uh are being are, is what the NAACP wants and so I I think mm-hmm. I, I guess what I'm I'm very curious to watch for and report on over the next couple of days is to see where Republicans especially Republicans in swing districts where are they going to be on this I mean and is something going to get done uh, and, and I mean, it, it, you would think that given all of this unrest, I mean, we're talking about a time in which, unfortunately, minority communities are disproportionately being affected by the effects of the pandemic. It's uh, of the 70 percent of, of the 35 percent of U.S. jobs that are at risk during this pandemic. Seventy percent of those are uh, minority groups, according to uh, a McKinsey report. So. I mean, there's just so many different economic impacts of this right now in this particular moment. Um, And if they're going to be talking about reforms, you know, it will be very interesting to see where those uh, Democrats and Republicans, can they work together to get something done? Jonathan Easley, uh, my good friend, and of course, uh, the uh, 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 one of the senior reporters over at The Hill. Uh, thank you for your reporting and much more coming up next. We're going to pivot to foreign policy. How How is the unrest in America being viewed around the world? That's my first question to Guy Snodgrass, who joins us next on Bloomberg 99.1. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. 
My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and for Bloomberg Radio. And we've got special continuing coverage all throughout the night uh, and into tomorrow morning as the unrest grips the nation. You know, I really just, I keep giving them props, but I really want to keep doing it because Lisa Abramowitz, uh, Jonathan Farrow, and of course Tom Keene have just been doing, I've been learning from their coverage about how to cover this because the economic reality on Wall Street is just totally totally in stark contrast from the unrest that is going around in the cities. And and I get it. If you're not in a city or you're not living in a city right now and there aren't helicopters flying around you and you don't see a military presence or the National Guard presence, I, I get it, you know, but, but for a large portion of Americans who are living with curfews right now, 6 p.m. curfew local time in Los Angeles, a 6 p.m. curfew in L.A., uh, and 8 p.m. tonight in New York City, uh, and of course 7 p.m. here in the nation's capital. It, it, it's unprecedented. I mean, they're they're really. I don't think that's a political or a biased word to use. It's 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 unprecedented. And I'm, I've been struck by this by how other countries have been uh, using uh, this to talk about it, and that's why. I'm really grateful for my buddy Guy Snodgrass, CEO of Defense Analytics. He's the former director of communications and chief speechwriter to Secretary of Defense James Mattis. He's also the author of Holding the Line Inside President Trump's Pentagon with Secretary Mattis. Uh, Guy, how are other countries around the world responding to the unrest in America? Well, I think, you know, you, you look at what has happened over the last several years when America looks outward and we're looking at domestic unrest in China or domestic unrest in any other nation, well, essentially, you just flip that around, right? So now if you are one of those nations and you're peering over across the ocean, whether it's the Pacific or Atlantic, and you're, and you're kind of peering into America's shoreline and you say, wow, there's, there's a lot of domestic unrest, there's a lot of flashpoints, and they're just um, – obviously, they're studying, they're watching. Some nations, I'm sure, longstanding allies and partners, no doubt, stand in solidarity with America – and would like to see, uh, you know, that stability return. China has been uh, taking to their own social media platforms to to use this to compare to the the uh, America's criticism of the Hong Kong of, of China's response to the Hong Kong protesters. Right, and you know, I, I think there's no surprise here. Every nation state will will take what is currently happening, you know, current events, and want to shape them for their own purposes. There were examples where this administration, like you mentioned, did this with China, with the unrest in Hong Kong. China themselves had marshaled a large number of military forces at the border of Hong Kong in order to try and tamp down some of the unrest. Uh, you know, they never really fully employed them, but they were there as a intimidating force. And obviously, America has not gone to that kind of extreme like China has. That being said, as you noted, they can point towards some of the domestic unrest as, uh, you, you know, kind of that et tu brute, right? You know, well, if you're po- pointing the finger at us, well, what about you? The good news, obviously, living in a democracy, uh, you know, it's a time of unrest right now. As we've seen in years and decades past, this too shall pass. There will be some resolution, and we'll be moving forward once again. What about how, in terms of Russia, because there's been this issue over the past several days, uh, and I want to be very careful in terms of, of, of how I word this, but uh, the former national security advisor Susan Rice on CNN on Sunday raised concerns that Russia or another hostile foreign bad actor was somehow perpetuating some of the 
not the protests, but the violent elements and the looting elements of these protests. I, I'm very curious, Guy, for your for your take on that. Well, I don't have the, I guess, the insight that Susan may have with regards to whether or not you know foreign powers are directly fomenting you know actual violence. Um, we have seen in years past, uh, the intelligence community has proved on numerous occasions that Russia in particular, as a state actor, has been very active within the borders of the United States and looking to, uh, you know, stir up trouble using social media accounts, uh, trying to amplify any kind of angst. And the, and the reality here is that that's not a surprise. If America has long been seen as incredibly strong on, it, on the international stage, if you can distract us here domestically, if you can get us looking inwardly and, and losing our focus on that international stage, I think that you have to ask yourself, who does that benefit? And certainly it benefits Russia, it benefits China and others. In the middle of all of this, the pandemic's still happening. <sighs> I mean, how? Uh, what have you been gathering in terms of the conversations that you're having with, uh, with your world uh, around the world in terms of are there any... Uh, potential areas where COVID-19 and the pandemic has really upended uh, society in a particular hostile region? Well, I think, you know, it's interesting because, like I said, everyone's been focused domestically. And I think a right. lot of times that's human nature for any nation. Uh, Japan had a uh, an outbreak, and, and then they thought they were past it. They started to have a reflash. So they, they focused inward. Uh, that's happening with a lot of nations. I think the one nation, of course, we always want to keep an eye on, as you already mentioned in this segment, is China. They have a noted desire to want to not only distract America, but then also when other nations are maybe at a, at a point where there's a pressure that can be applied, they'd like to jump in and kind of fill that void, uh, whether it's uh, with soft, soft power by offering support, offering help. This was something they did with a fairly – Good success with Italy, where they, Italy, of course, had been one of the epicenters early on of the outbreak of coronavirus. China had offered support, made a big show of coming back to Italy's aid, and they tied it to aid that Italy provided to China a decade before. So certainly nations and, and various hotspots throughout the world will we'll be keeping an eye on this for weeks and months to come. But I do want to go back one one step, and that's just with the domestic unrest and I think, you know, something we should probably dig a little deeper into is just the use of the U.S. military. Yeah, that's where uh, I was during going During this time yeah, of domestic unrest. Yeah, I mean, that, that's something that's definitely caught my ear. And uh, a lot of my friends still in uniform are, are, are very concerned about that. So let's talk about that. I mean, so for the, the Pentagon has distanced itself or has distanced its leaders from President Trump's use from President Trump's threat to use the military on protesters. What do we know about that? Well, I think you got to take one step back, right? So yesterday you had this, I mean, you could say it's a powerful optic. You had General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, there with President Trump when he had gone to the church to, to hold the Bible aloft. But General Milley was wearing fatigues, right? So he's wearing his camouflage uniform. And, and that kind of sends a very strong signal that, as the president has said in the past, that kind of we're at war, we're in a conflict. Uh, this is something that you need overwhelming power to overcome. And, of course, the immediate challenge is this is, this is a domestic situation. It's domestic unrest. This is not a, a conflict against an external aggressor, someone you need to, as we just said, overcome. The other one was that uh, there was a, quite a bit of news made when Secretary of Defense Mark Esper had been 
uh, recorded on a phone call that President Trump was having with the governors about the fact that they needed to use overwhelming power to basically uh, kind of overrun and end these protests and these demonstrations. And, and again, I think that the biggest danger, and this is something that we've talked about because I explored it in my book, and that's just the over-politicization of the military. You're dragging the military into a very politically charged moment in time. And the big danger is that the military has enjoyed, has long enjoyed for decades, the trust and confidence of the American public. And by bringing them in to this kind of a situation, you risk not only eroding that trust, but you certainly risk uh, having the military be seen as, as a tool that can be used uh, against its own population, which, of course, is not the right course of action. I mean, just hearing you say that, Guy, it's, it's you know, I just want to let that sink in. Uh, so what what would you advise the next steps uh, be uh, over the next 24, uh, over the next hour and a half, you know, as we're as we're an hour and a half away from the, the next round of curfews? Sure. So I, I think you know, honesty and transparency for any leader, regardless of who you're talking about, whether it's at the national or the state or the local level level. Honesty, transparency, consistency are incredibly important tools. And one of the things that really, as a leader, as a senior leader, you want is to build that rapport with the citizens that you lead. And you do that through – by building trust, you build that through honesty. And so, yeah. you know, for example, there had been some ink spilled that President Trump was threatening to federalize the National Guard to then distribute them around the country to hotspots. And that would allow him to uh, retake the situation. Of course, that's that's we're nowhere near that kind of a situation. So you don't want to threaten that kind of action right. uh, without actually expecting to use it. All right. Guy Snodgrass, CEO of Defense Analytics, former director of communications and chief speech writer to Secretary Mattis. Thank you. I appreciate your time. Coming up, we check in with Al Mater. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli. On Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Lots to get through in terms of the 2020 race. Joe Biden delivered a speech in Philadelphia earlier today talking about the racial unrest in America. He said, quote, I will not traffic in fear and division. I won't fan the flames of hate. He went on to say that he, uh, I'll seek to heal the racial wounds that have long plagued our country, not use them for political gain. I'll do my job and I'll take my and I'll take responsibility. I won't blame others. Uh, joining us on the line, Al Mater. Al is a Democratic strategist and a partner at Brownstein, Hyatt, Farber and Shrek. Al, first of all, thanks for joining us. How are you? How's the fam? Having great. How are you doing? I hope everybody's OK. Yeah, I can't complain. Uh, okay, so Biden delivers this speech, and I mean, is this it, obviously it's going to play well to Democrats in the base, uh, uh, and and President Trump's comments are going to play well with his base, but can Biden win over independents with that speech? Well, if he if he can't, we're in a lot of trouble because I thought he offered the type of leadership the calm and comforting that people expect from their presidents in times of these like these. And um, I, I was very heartened by what he had to say, frankly. You know, he, he gave the kind of talk that President Obama uh, would have given, that President Clinton would have given, and it was great to hear. It was great to see him out of his basement, standing on a stage, addressing the nation as he would were he to be president. 
and offer hope and aspiration um, and humility. That's what we expect out of our leaders. Okay, in terms of a policy, I mean, you know this, you have conversations with senators and lawmakers all the time. In terms of an actual policy or some type of reform measure to, to come out of this, do you think there's an appetite for that at this particular time? If there ever were to be, it would be now. Uh, he called, the vice president called today for a policy against chokeholds by police. Senator Kamala Harris called, uh, has called for a national policy on police. The Congressional Black Caucus has a, a series of proposals, including considering whether to rid um, police the protection of qualified immunity, which is an exceedingly enhanced legal protection that makes it very difficult to charge uh, police officers even when they commit what anyone else would be uh, considered to be a crime. So I do think there, there is uh, an appetite. You look at CEOs like Randall Stevenson, the head of AT&T, calling upon his fellow CEO colleagues to step in and advance the cause of justice. So I actually am optimistic that maybe we can get something done, particularly if uh, the vice president wins the election. Well, I'm really glad you brought up Randall Stevenson and, and CEOs. What can businesses and CEOs do in this time uh, to to be a positive change agent? Well, you know, usually CEOs are, when it comes to race, are being criticized for not hiring enough people of color. So to have a CEO of one of the largest companies in America say that we need to be doing more for justice, that's exceedingly positive and cause for optimism. I also think that they're stepping in, both he and others who are talking like this, uh, to the vacuum created by President Trump's inability to lead. It's nice that he can talk about law and order and he can say there shouldn't be violence. Well, everybody agrees there shouldn't be violence, but that's the, that's the extent of his leadership. In other words, there's nothing else. And so uh, that's where you see people like Stevenson say, wait, we can do more and we want to be part of the solution. Al Motter's on the line. He's a Democratic strategist. He uh, is also uh, a partner at Brownstein, Hyatt, Farber, and Shrek. And we're talking about uh, the, the 2020 race. Uh, Senator Kamala Harris, you mentioned uh, uh, think proposals that she has called for. Is she the front runner in terms of, the pr in the, in terms of Biden's vice presidential pick? I don't know. I think the conventional wisdom is that she might be the front runner, but that matters little in these things. You know, Joe Biden is a very visceral politician. He wears his heart on his sleeve, and I think in these times that's a good thing. But he's going to pick somebody who he feels simpatico with emotionally and viscerally in his gut. Is that Senator Harris? I don't know. Maybe. Um, but, but I think the process is going to be particularly personal for him, more so than it's been for some other candidates when they've made the selection. And so I think he's going to take a long time doing this. There are a lot of great candidates, women, uh, that he's considering, some that we didn't even know he was considering, that he's interviewed or talked to or his staff have talked to. And I think that in the end it's going to be someone that he really, really feels comfortable with as a partner. Do you think – when does he have to make that decision by? What is the timeline and the timetable for Biden to, to make his vice presidential pick? Well, he, he said publicly he's going to do it by August 1st. So There's a lot um, of time between now. That's like two months. I want to know when. I want to know the time. I want to know where. I want to know all of it. <laughs> well, usually it's not announced until after the convention, until the convention comes. So, you know, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't worry about it in terms of timing. I think it'll be, um, it'll be by the end of July, the beginning of August. The convention isn't until 
um, isn't until middle of August. So he's got plenty of time. What's the risk right now, Al Mater, for the Biden campaign in dealing with this national unrest? So much of the attention has, has rightfully been focused on, on who, the leaders who are elected in office now and what they are doing or what they are not doing. But what is the risk in terms of being the, the standard bearer for the Democratic Party? What is his risk uh, as this unrest continues? You know, I think it's an opportunity. I don't see it as a risk, Kevin. I think he's um, uniquely suited for this because he's, he is so visceral, and he is such a healer, and he is a comforter. And frankly, his age is a benefit, too, because he comes across, you know, like the grandfather-in-chief. You know, obviously, there's a risk for anybody who engages in these types of issues. But I'm not really too worried about um, his administering uh, moral leadership in these times. You watched his speech this morning. He was spectacular. I thought he nailed it. All right. And just in the last uh, couple of minutes, two minutes that we have left, I just want to get your take on terms of an appetite for uh, another round of economic stimulus. Uh, what are you hearing in terms of another round of economic stimulus uh, and when might that happen? I think we're likely to see another pairs legislative package come through at the end of June. Um, it's likely that there'll be bipartisan support for it. And, um, you know, look, we've got 45 million people who are unemployed. We're going to have 50 million people unemployed. Sorry that my dog just ran into the room. Make a little no noise. Worries. I apologize. No, don't we're, even, hey, have, what's the dog's name? What's the dog's name? Uh, his name is Cooper. All right, Cooper. Go ahead. You made your sound on Bloomberg Radio debut. Go ahead. So go ahead. But, about but the, we're going to have, you know, we're going to have so many people unemployed the most since the Great Depression and... If we don't have uh, a stimulus package now, when are we going to have one? And I, I'm very optimistic that by the end of June, members of Congress will come together on something. It won't be as perhaps as sweeping as the first uh, set of legislative initiatives. But, look, you've got Fed Chair Powell saying we need more. You've got Secretary Mnuchin saying Congress needs to do more. And I think uh, Leader McConnell and Speaker Pelosi both recognize the urgency. It's not going to be the House bill in full, but there will be um, – there will be something that comes out of Congress, I think, in the next three to five weeks that's pretty significant. All right. Al Mater, Democratic strategist and a partner uh, at Brownstein, Hyatt, Farber, and Shrek. Thanks for uh, checking in with us. And go go out, take care of Cooper. All right, Al? I will. Take care, Kevin. All right. And uh, remember, folks, uh, you can follow all of the latest on the pandemic, on the economy reopening, and, of course, on all of the unrest uh, throughout the country uh, cross-channel on Bloomberg Television and on Bloomberg Radio. You can download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find me on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. That does it for me, Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. And thank you, thank you, thank you for listening uh, and stay safe. Thank you for listening to Bloomberg 99.1. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. 
Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.